So we're working on our new series called Fingerprints. Um, this week, uh, for anybody who wasn't here last week, uh, we started in Genesis chapter 1, and we spent the entire time looking for the fingerprints of Jesus all over the passage. And so we're, we're kind of reading the Old Testament in a way that might be unfamiliar, it might be a little different, it might be a little strange. Um, and so I want to just make sure we're all in that same mindset, that we're not going to be reading this book of Genesis and later on Exodus. We're not going to read it in the normal way. We're going to read it with our magnifying glass, looking for hints and clues and fingerprints of Jesus throughout. But before we do that, I would love if you would join me in going to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. We're so thankful that you have given us the, the law and the prophets and the poetry and the New Testament and all of this book that you have given us that ultimately points us to Jesus, Lord. So we just ask that you would soften our hearts. We would ask that you would help us to see Jesus Christ throughout all of your us to see Jesus outside of the scriptures, that you would help us to see him in the church, that you would help us to see him in the community. And most importantly, Lord, we ask that you would help us to show Jesus to others that we might become like a stained glass window and let your light shine through us so that those in the community see Jesus and they want to get to know him better. Lord, I ask that you would be with me. I ask that you would make my speech clear and concise so that those who are here listening would hear it and understand it and ultimately that they would get to know Jesus better. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. All right, so we are going to cover a lot of Bible today, so I want to just jump right in. No stories, no explanations, because we got a lot of Bible to get through. So if you would turn to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, there was no one to work the ground. All right, right here I want to pause for a minute. I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Because when I know when I was a kid and I would first read the story, I would have a whole bunch of questions. First and foremost, my question was, well, didn't we... Why is, why is the Bible telling me that no plant had sprung up on the earth when we just read in chapter 1 that God created the earth in seven days and now we're being told that now there's no plants? And so I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. What we're getting here in chapter 2 is not a continuation of chapter 1, but a retelling of chapter 1 with more detail. Right? So you have chapter 1... God tells us the seven days of creation, and he tells us this big picture view of everything that happened when he created the earth. And now, here in chapter 2, we're taking a step back, and we're going through all of the details that we missed in chapter 1. So we got the broad overview, and here now we're going to go back, and we're going to get a retelling of the creation account, but with more look at what happened. Okay, so don't think this is a continuation. This is going back and we're telling the story again with more detail. 
And the second thing I wanted to point out is I always used to wonder why, why are we starting in verse 4 and why are we not reading the whole chapter, chapter 2? Or, or perhaps the other question would be, why, is, why are verses 1 through 3, uh, the heavens and the earth were completed, on the seventh day God finished his work, and so he rested. Why are those included in chapter 2 and not chapter 1? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. To just kind of clear that up, we have to understand that the chapters and the verses and all those little numbers in your Bible, those were only added about 500 years ago. Those are not part of the original Scripture. Those are not part of the original. That's something that we added later so that we could find things. And so there's no mystery. There's no weird thing going on there. It's simply a fact that like, we wanted numbers in our Bible so that we could quickly find things. And so there's not really a significance to it. It just, whoever came up with the numbers put it in a weird place. So don't think too much of that. Don't read in too much of that. Um, a lot of people will get into the numbers and they will say, well, you know, chapter 6, verse 66, that makes 666. And there's something, no, there's nothing. There's nothing to it. It's just numbers. It's just for our benefit. It's not part of the original scripture. So that is why we're starting in verse 4, because that is where the story starts. Okay, so with that out of the way, let's look at that first verse. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. And I want to look at that phrase. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. If you've got a, an, an English standard, an ESV says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Um, the New King James reads, uh, this is the history of the heavens and the earth. The Christian Standard Bible says, these are the records of the heavens and the earth. What I find fascinating is the, the literal word there in the original language is Genesis. This is the genesis of the heavens and the earth. That's where we get the name of the book from. And that word, Genesis, means uh, an ancestry or a point of origin or a beginning. And, and it kind of encompasses this whole idea of this is the beginning. This is the account. This is the history of everything that was created from day one moving on. And the reason that that is so important when we're looking for the fingerprints of Jesus. Turn over to the very first line in the New Testament. Matthew chapter... Matthew 1 verse 1 says, This is, in my NIV says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Does anyone want to guess what the word there in the original language for this is the genealogy? Guess what that word is? Genesis. So if you lived in the first century, if you lived in Jesus' day and you read the very first story, well, not the very first story, the second story, but it's the, the very first account of the Old Testament and you read this is the genesis of the heavens and the earth, and then you turn to your New Testament, you turn to Matthew, and you read, this is the genesis of Jesus the Messiah. See, make no mistake, what we have with the coming of Jesus is a redo of the creation of the world. 
God sent his son to redo the fiasco that we did in Genesis chapter 2. He's sending his son to do things right where we failed. And see, last week we talked about how Jesus brings new creation through the cross, through the empty tomb. Here we're seeing these fingerprints. We're seeing the idea of Jesus being a part of creation even here in the introduction. This is the Genesis. And I want us to look here at verse 6. I find this fascinating. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 6. It says, But streams came up from the earth surface of the ground. Not an odd way to bring water. What's the normal way we get water on the earth today? It's from rain, right? But God chose instead to, of having rain come from above to water the earth, He chose to have a string, a well that bubbled up from inside the earth. You see, rain is fleeting. Rain is a source of water, a source of life that comes and moves on. And you can bet that when you see those rain clouds coming on, you know you're going to get a little bit of water, but then it's eventually going to go. Now think about how a spring works. Here in Nebraska, we're on top of the Ogallala Aquifer, a giant source of water that seemingly goes on forever. Right? And we know that you know, today in our fallen world, there's no source of water that goes on forever. But when God created the earth, he's created a source of life that goes on eternally. It doesn't blow away. It doesn't stop. I want to compare that to what Jesus says in John 4. John 4, starting in verse 13. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. And in verse 13, he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about the well. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so when we're reading Genesis, when we're reading the Old Testament, we should see those connections. We should see the fact that God creates this spring of water that wells up in the earth, just like Jesus Christ creates a spring of, of eternal life within us. The ultimate source of life. In fact, everything that God does in the creation account to bring life into the world, Jesus, in a way, does for us. To bring life into the world, Jesus does for us. Look at the way he forms Adam in verse 7 of Genesis. It says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. All right, so we have God. 
He makes everything. He sends this well of life. And then he a man to rule over it. We talked about that last week. He said, I am going to make Adam to be the ruler of my creation, to be the ambassador of my creation. And he breathes the Spirit. Because he wasn't alive at the point when God created him. He was just dirt. He was just a thing, just like the trees and the rocks and the mountains. But it wasn't until God breathed breath into his nostrils that he actually became alive. And the word there for breath is also the same word for spirit. So literally it means God breathed the Holy Spirit into him, or he breathed his spirit into Adam. And back again, you don't have to turn there because I've got it on the screen here. In John 20, right after the resurrection, John 20, 20, it says, Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. And if you don't know the account, if you don't know the fingerprints of Jesus all over the Old Testament, you might read John 20 and be like, that's weird. Like, why would, why would Jesus just go and... That's, that's weird, right? But what he's doing is he is imbibing on them. He says, breathe on them and receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus is saying, the same God who breathed the Spirit into Adam, I am. I breathe life into you. So we're, we're in Genesis. We have this stream of water coming up from the earth. God takes a man. He forms him from the dust. He breathes life into him. We hear about this garden that he planted. And there's another little fingerprint I want to talk about. Because now we get a chance to go back and talk about the streams. In verse 10. It says, A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first was the Pishon. Its winds through the, it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. It's good to know. The name of the second river is the Gishon. It winds through the entire land of Kutch. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we have this eternal source of life welling up from the earth, and then it divides off into four. Now how fitting is it that our eternal source of life, Jesus, life and death and burial and resurrection is also put into four? Because we're given four accounts of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I don't think that's a coincidence that our source of life, the account of our source of life, is also in four different directions, told in four different ways, but all of them derived from the very one headwaters, from the very one source of life, which is Christ. And they all go in different directions, they all have different points of view, but they ultimately originate with Christ. 
And so we see these fingerprints all over the account of creation. We see these hints and little reminders and little things that point to Jesus is the answer to all of the questions that arise in this first three quarters of the book. So I'll talk about Adam for a minute. In verse 15, I apologize for making you flip back and forth. In verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds in the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother, and he is united with his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So we have God creating the world. He takes this man out of the dust, breathes life into him, and then he sets him in the garden to take care of it. See, the word there in the Hebrew, there's not really a good English word for it, but it, but it kind of gives us this idea that he set him to be a steward of the garden. So one of the first duties of a steward of a castle or a kingdom is to take care of it, to do the maintenance, to work the land, to do all of that other stuff. But the second most important duty that's kind of implied in this word is to guard it, to take care of it, and to guard it from outsiders. So the person who was set as a steward would be the one who would also stand guard and protect the castle or the kingdom or whatever. But then you got to ask yourself, if everything God created was good, what is Adam guarding Eden from? What is he protecting it from? And we might say maybe it's the serpent. But as we'll read a little later on, the serpent doesn't actually do anything. He uses his words to deceive, but the serpent doesn't actually do anything to harm the creation. It's Adam and Eve who sin and bring death into the world. See, because Satan doesn't have power in your life if you don't let him. Satan can't sin for you. He can only convince you to sin, just like the serpent convinced Adam and Eve to sin. That's important. They were the ones who were doing the doing. 
So then to the question, what is Adam in charge of protecting Eden from? Well, the answer is himself. That's the only possible explanation. Adam is there to protect the paradise from himself, from his own free will, from his own desire to sin. Just as a little side note, how we can apply that to our lives, when you feel tempted to sin, when you feel like Satan is trying to get you to do something that's not against God's will, remember the fact that Satan cannot do the sinning for you. He has no power over you. And better than that, we have an advocate within us, the Holy Spirit, who fights on our behalf. We have a Savior who defeated Satan and death once and for all. The only power He has over us is the power we give to Him. But as much as we can draw parallels between our lives and with Adam's, I want to flip that script on its head here and compare Adam's life with Jesus and see the parallels we can see between Adam and Jesus and how we can see the fingerprints of Jesus all over him. I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5 with me, please. I'm going to start in verse, chapter 5, verse 14. It says, Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for the many died, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow? To the many. Did you catch what Paul said there? Verse 14. Adam is a pattern of the one to come. See, Paul recognized that Adam was not a pattern for us. He was a pattern for Christ. And he points out some very key differences, doesn't he? One of the biggest ways we find those fingerprints in the Old Testament is we look for those differences and similarities between people in the Old Testament and Jesus. And what we find is every time we see these patterns, we see that they're never perfect patterns. There's always a similarity between this person and Jesus, but it's always flawed. That word pattern, is, it's kind of a funny word. The New Living um, phrases it this way. It says, Still everyone died from the time of Adam to Moses, even those who did not obey, disobey, and explicit commandment of God, as Adam did. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who is yet to come. The ESV says, Adam is a type of the one to come. And that's probably the most accurate word there. He is a type of Jesus. But I want to make sure we understand that word type. See, the word type, when we say Adam is a type of Jesus, we don't mean kind. He's not a kind of Jesus. Not that kind of type. The word type 
is the same kind of type like, okay, whoever here has used an old school typewriter? Okay, I see one hand. That's good. I've used one. And I mean like not an electric one. I mean an old school where you push down a button and the lever goes and flap and just flamps that letter up on the paper. That's the kind of type we're talking about. So when you have this typewriter, you have this mechanical arm that has the letter on it, and it gets it's sitting on the ink ribbon, and, and I don't know how they actually work, but I know it does something like that. And then it takes that impression, and when you push that key, it flaps it. That's a, it's a technical term, flap. It flaps it on that paper, and it makes an imprint of that letter on the paper. But you'll know, if you've ever seen things written with a typewriter, and you look at them really close, they're never perfect. They're always smudged a little bit. There's always a little bit of ink that overflows. It's never a perfect impression of the letter. It's always an imperfect impression, a type of that letter. In fact, it's the same word that type is um, in, in the Greek and the ancient world. That was what was used to describe uh, when you make coins. If you make a coin in ancient Rome, you would take a blank piece of metal and you'd have this imprint of the emperor or whomever, and you would set it on there and you would just bang it with a hammer until the face of that emperor was on the coin. But it was always imperfect. It was never a perfect impression. And so when Paul says that Adam is a type of Christ, what he means there is he's a pattern of Christ with all of the flaws, with all of the imperfections that can show us what the true image looks like if we can kind of get around all of the flaws. And so let's take a look at Adam as a type of Christ and see if we can see those fingerprints all around him. God creates him. He puts him in the garden. He says, you are free to eat from any tree, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you must not eat. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. See, God gives Adam a choice in the garden. God gives Adam the decision, obey or disobey, and he was tempted. What happened to Jesus when he was tempted in the garden? Mark 14, 1436. Jesus is getting ready to be arrested, and he's tempted because he prays to God. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Please, I, I'm adding, sorry. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, he prays to the Father and says, if there's any way. And Jesus knows that the only way is to be obedient up until the point of death. But he's still tempted. He still asks the Father, please, if there's any way that we can get around this. But then the difference between Adam and Christ is at the end of all that, Jesus says, but not what I will, but you, what you will. See, Jesus was tempted to disobey. He was tempted to not go through with the crucifixion, but at the end of the day, he didn't. He was obedient up until the point of death. The other thing I find interesting here, back in Genesis, one of the most unusual things in this entire account so far. Let me find it again. 
Verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. So I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that's the very first time in the entire account of creation that God made something and then said it was not good. Everything else, all seven days, and he made this, and it was good, and he saw this, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then we get to this point, and he says, but this part, this is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper responding to him. See, the word there gives us this idea of, God says, I will make a helper who is a perfect mirror image of him. Equal and opposite in every way. Like looking into a pond, a corresponding helper to him. And so God makes all of these animals and he brings them to Adam and Adam names them. Yet none of them were suitable for him. And you'll notice when God creates all of those animals, not one of them, they're all created from the earth just like Adam, but not one of them receives the spirit like Adam did. None of them receives the breath of life the same way Adam did. It's important because we have to understand that our role is special on this earth. God created us for a special purpose and gave us his spirit for a special reason. So what does God do? He causes the man to fall asleep and he takes a rib from his side. He pierces Adam's side to create Eve. And I hope you're in the mindset of seeing those fingerprints when I say he pierces Adam's side. Hopefully that makes you think of Jesus on the cross. When he's on that cross, what's that Roman soldier do? He takes a spear and he pierces Jesus' side, just like Adam's side was pierced. And part of Adam is taken from him and becomes his bride. So if we see Adam as a representation of Jesus, as a type of Jesus, it naturally follows, what does the bride of Adam represent? The bride of Christ, church. And it's no mistake we are called the bride of Christ, just like Eve was the bride of Adam. We're also called what? The body of Christ. Just like Eve was taken and is made from the body of Adam. That's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. That is why we leave the world to be united with Christ, that we may be conformed to the image of Christ. Adam says to his bride, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. We are the body. We are bone of his bones, of Jesus' flesh. We are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. But what happens? In the type, in the pattern we start to see where it falls apart. So turn with me to chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you certainly will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Okay, I need to got a soapbox moment. I want to point out something really quickly in this account. I specifically want to talk about the way we portray this account. You know, in the, the cartoon versions of Adam and Eve, they always describe Eve as talking alone with the serpent. And then she goes over and finds Adam, and he's over here minding his own business, and she says, here, eat this. And then he's tempted, and he eats. I want to point out verse, um, let's see, verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it also. Who was with her. So you mean to tell me that this whole time, we've been watching these cartoon Sunday school versions, but in reality, Eve is having this conversation with the serpent, and Adam's over there like... The whole time he was there. And, and the reason I point this out uh, specifically is you will hear people use this account in order to put down women to say, well, Eve sinned first and then she tempted Adam. Don't ever, ladies, don't ever let anybody pull that on you. Point to this verse. Adam, who was with her, he was there the whole time just as guilty. He heard the same conversation happen and then said nothing. Sorry, I'm off my soapbox, but that's important because I want to understand that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It's not a gender thing. It's not a men-women thing. Adam was there the whole time. All right, I'm done. I'm done with that part. Sorry. Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Okay, maybe I'm back on my soapbox again. Because Adam says, and says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. What a smarmy little... Well, it wasn't me, it was that woman. She's the one who tempted me. But we can pick on Adam all day. 
But then what does Eve say? Woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we can make fun of Adam for passing the buck onto Eve, but guess what? She did the exact same thing. Well, it wasn't me. Remember what we talked about? The serpent didn't do any of the sinning. We're the ones who do the sinning. And here's a cold hard fact about reality. The only one who has the power to make decisions in your life is you. I understand that we're in a broken world and we're prone to sin and we have this natural tendency to disobey and we've got a lot fighting against us. But as Christians, do we really want to stand before God and make excuses for our sin? It wasn't me. It was that woman you put there. I didn't commit adultery. That woman you put here to tempt me, she caused me to do it. I didn't cheat on my taxes. The form was right and the pen was there and it just made me put the wrong numbers in. I didn't steal that candy bar. It was just laying there. God, you put that temptation in front of me. God doesn't want our excuses. He didn't want Adam and Eve's excuses. Psalm 51 says this. This is Psalm 51, verse 17. It says, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Contrite means basically repentant. A repentant heart. God doesn't want our excuses. He doesn't want us to stand before Him and say, That woman you put here in the garden, she made me do it. That serpent, Satan, he made me do us. He wants us to kneel down before him like Peter did and say, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He wants us to take ownership of our sin and say, God, I am in need of a Savior because I am broken and I need you to help fix me because I can't do it on my own. That's what Adam should have said. That's what Eve should have said. I want to look at God's response after they've made excuses for their sin. I want to hear what God says. See if we can see these fingerprints again. In verse 14, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Who is the serpent? Say it louder. Satan. God says, you will eat dust all of the days of your life. You will be stuck here in the earthly realm. You have no place with me in the kingdom of heaven. So when we talk about Satan being the ruler of this world, that's what we mean. God said to the certain, you will eat dust. You will be stuck here. And then he says, 
and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Let's go back to our types. Who does the woman represent? Represents the church. I will put enmity, Satan, between you and my church. The reason I brought up that stuff about Adam and Eve is because it is true that Eve was the first to sin. But we shouldn't take that as an indication that women somehow are more prone to sin than men. If we see Eve as the bride representing the church, we should understand that we as the church are prone to sin. We are the bride. We are the ones who have to face Satan in the tree telling us, did God say you shouldn't do that? Did he really say that? And then notice here, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Isn't that interesting? It's not they, your offspring, and they will strike your head. It's he. See, God moves from talking in the plural sense, and he moves from talking directly to Eve, and now he's talking about one particular offspring of Eve. He will strike your head. Who's he talking about there? Talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ was struck a minor blow on the heel. He suffered death on the cross. That was Satan striking at his heel, but what did he do? He smashed the head of Satan. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you jump there. I just get excited. Jesus Christ defeated Satan once and for all. Praise God, we have victory. We have victory over the serpent, and we have confident hope we can know that. And then God says to the woman, to the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbirth very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And I hear, I hear the chuckling, and, and my, my wife loves to make those jokes. When we have, I've got two kids, and uh, she always, my wife always made the joke, you know, after we had the kids, and it was, it was painful, and she was like, Eve, if she wouldn't have eaten that stinking fruit, this would have been a smooth sailing operation. But if we're looking for the fingerprints, if we're applying what God says to Eve to the church, we get a little bit different picture, don't we? When we think about the pains that we go through, the suffering that we go through, in the birth of the early church, the child pains of the early church, they were persecuted beyond belief. They went through those early childbearing pains. But it wasn't over then, was it? The church is still persecuted around the world. 
You go to places like China and Afghanistan and Iran, and people are put to the sword still for proclaiming Jesus Christ as their Savior. So we got to know that we are destined to go through pain. That's a hard reality to face. But as Christians, it is we are destined to go through suffering and pain. But Jesus gives us hope. John 16, real quick. 16, verse 20. Jesus talks about these childbearing pains to his disciples. He says, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into this world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one, let me say that one more time, and no one will take away your joy. So we can have confident hope that even this, in this life, we might have struggles, we might have pain, we might have anguish. We can have confident hope that Jesus promises us that our pain will turn to a joy that no one has the power to take from us. Praise God. Nobody can take the joy of Christ from us. And then we read back in Genesis. Oh, I lost it again. It's at the very beginning. I should be able to find it easily. Verse 17. Now it's God's instructions to Adam. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles from you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now here's where the stamp gets really messy on our type. Because for the actual Adam, returning to the dust meant death. For he had sinned, for he had brought sin into the world. It meant the grave once and for all forever. But for Christ, for the perfect image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, returning to the dust meant a temporary stay in the tomb and then raising from the dead and defeating death once and for all. Everything the imperfect copy failed to do, Jesus did perfectly. Through Adam, we received temptation, but through Christ, we receive transformation. Through Adam came condemnation, but through Jesus comes justification. Through Adam, we receive the grave, but through Jesus, we have an empty tomb. 
through Adam, we inherited obstacles and lies and separation from God. But through Jesus, only Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and the only way to the Father is through Him. And Satan might strike your heel. He might deal a temporary blow in temptation. He might get at you from time to time. But Jesus Christ nailed our sin and our temptations to the cross. We have hope in that. Didn't work out well for Adam and Eve. We know that. We know the story. And as we read on through the next several weeks, we're going to see just how bad things got. But I hope you are starting to see that the fingerprints of Christ, sometimes it's big, giant red arrows pointing us to Christ, are there. We can find hope in the midst of all of our pain. Will you go to God and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so, so unbelievably grateful for your son, Jesus. We're thankful that you sent your son to clean up the mess that we made, Lord. From Adam, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, we know that. And yet you, out of your love and mercy for us, sent your son to do what we could never do. To take on the pain and the and the punishment for the sins that we deserve. And Lord, we don't want to make excuses for our sin. We don't want to make our fallen condition turn into an excuse to you. We know that none of us is capable of living without sin, but that's not us giving you an excuse, God. That's not us telling you that the serpent made us do it, that the woman made us do it. That is us coming to you and saying, we are broken, Lord, and we need a Savior. We need you. We need everything you give us. We need the life that you well up within us. We need the stream of life that wells up within us. We need your word. We need four accounts of the gospel. We need Jesus, Lord. And so we thank you that you give us what we need. We pray that you would be with us throughout the week, that you would help us to see Jesus everywhere we go. We help us to show Jesus to everyone we meet. We pray all of these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. And the church said, Amen. And this time we'd like to get started with a song of invitation. This is a time in which we give the opportunity to make Jesus your Savior.